Kids, you can uh, head off to Kid Zone at this time. I can see they do not need any prompt. They are ready to go at that. As they're going, I want us to spend uh, some time in, in prayer together today, just thinking about some of the, the local things. I know uh, Conrad and Rachel and uh, Cage are going to be uh, doing a soccer camp with their commonplace group doing a ministry. And so we want to be uh, praying for those kind of local ministries that are taking place. But also uh, items that obviously get in the news as big as problems that are happening in the Ukraine, but also big problems that often are not making it in the news. And uh, I know our global mission agency, Mennonite Central Committee, that works to provide relief development and peace building around the world, is, uh, works in many countries around the world, and especially many of the countries in Africa, um, and in the Darfur region, for example, and, and other places where uh, famines of massive proportions are happening. And so we want to be praying about that, and also I know our, our own government up to today is uh, doubling any donations that we make towards that. If you are not aware of that, you might want to Keep that in mind as well. So let us, let's pray together. Oh God, we have just sung about you being the same. Lord, when we open up your word and when we read about, Lord, I think about under Joseph, how you sent him ahead to provide, Lord, in anticipation of a great famine that was coming that would affect uh, the world of that day. Lord, you are a God who plans and prepares and uses your people. Lord, um, and so we, we pray, Lord, both for those working on the front lines in working with refugees in places like, yes, in the Ukraine, but also so many in impoverished areas uh, throughout Africa, and we think especially of Ethiopia and the, and the people there, many, Lord, of whom are Christians and who are experiencing uh, great difficulty. And Lord, we pray that you would move the hearts of your people and governments and others to, Lord, to come to the aid of your people. Lord, again, stories in the Bible, Lord, of how you even changed the king of, uh, of Cyrus, the Media and Persian king. You moved his heart, Lord, to come to the aid of your people. And Lord, you are able to move individuals and Lord, even nations. Lord, we also uh, pray for peace in Ukraine. Lord, for the many families that are, whose lives have been so disrupted, who have lost so many loved ones. Lord, uh, many refugees from there are also coming to ours and uh, and Lord, we thank you that there is a family that will also be coming, that we will have an opportunity to, to help to get settled in and, and to support. And so, Lord, um, we just, we know that it makes a difference. There, in the face of overwhelming need, Lord, it can be overwhelming. And yet, God, you invite us to be a part of what you are doing and want done in the world. And Lord, we think locally of the soccer camp that will be taking place this week. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the volunteers and the leaders that will be uh, working with all of the kids. Lord, we pray as they also not only share stories, but their own testimonies. And Lord, as they enjoy learning skills together, Lord, that they would also 
learn about the importance of spiritual fitness and connectedness. And so, Lord, we ask your blessing upon them, and that, Lord, that we would see uh, people come to faith in you. Because, God, that is what your heart is, a great heart for restoration. And, Lord, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds, that we, Lord, would meet you in a new way. Amen. The only survivor of a shipwreck was washed up on, a, on an uninhabited island, and he cried out from there for God to save him. And every day he would go and he would scan the horizon looking for the help that, we, that he thought would be coming. But uh, nothing. And eventually he was just exhausted and he managed to build himself a, a small rough hut and, uh, and the few possessions that had survived, and he, and he had them all together in his small hut. And one day he was out hunting for food, and when he came back, he arrived only to find his little hut had caught fire and was all going up in flames. And the smoke was billowing up into the sky. I mean, he just thought, what worst thing could happen? And he was just overcome with grief. And... Uh, after a fitful sleep early the next day, a ship happened to come close to the island, and they rescued him. And, uh, and he said, how did you know I was here? Oh, his rescuers said, we saw your smoke signal. Hmm. The rescuers put what happened into a whole new light, a new perspective. And what they did for that lone survivor, the writer of the book of James, I think, wants to do for us to help us see things like our present trials in a whole new perspective, in the light of what God is seeking to do through them. And though it may not seem so now, your present difficulty may actually be instrumental to your future well-being. Today, I'm going to be starting a new series on the, on the letter of James, and I invite you to, to turn to it. We're going to be getting to that. It's near the end of your New Testament, in case you're wondering where, after Hebrews. You may not know it, but James has been described as the most celebrated and the most criticized of all the New Testament books. Its checkered history goes back to the early centuries when some prominent early believers questioned whether James should even be in the New Testament. You know, he wasn't an apostle. It wasn't widely shared among the churches. And the great reformer, Martin Luther, in the, fifth, in the 16th century, he was one of James's most famous critics, probably, and he described James as an epistle, a letter of straw. That is, it didn't have the grain of the gospel in it. And he suggested that it be relegated to the end of the New Testament. Well, a quick glance at the letter of James helps explain why people like Martin Luther thought of it as second class at best. For starters, James seems to have very little to say about Jesus. Jesus is actually only mentioned twice in the opening verse of chapter 1 and the opening verse of chapter 2. And there are no references to the other parts of the gospel that feature so prominently everywhere else in the New Testament. You know, Jesus' death and resurrection, not in James. Well, others have criticized James for his lack of clarity and cohesiveness. 
Since he he shifts from one subject to another and then back again with no clear structure or clearly defined theme, some have wondered, did James have attention deficit disorder? But perhaps the most famous criticism is that James contradicts the Apostle Paul. That was Luther's main critique. You know, one of Paul's most central and cherished teachings is that we are justified or made right in God's eyes by grace. Through faith alone, not by works. But James. James says, you can see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Wow. Well, as you can imagine, Luther was quite offended by James' statement. And he said, James mangles the scripture and thereby opposes Paul and all scripture. Well, needless to say, those looking for, you know, the contradictions in the Bible frequently cite these verses. So much for the criticisms against James. You see, because his letter is also be widely celebrated for his honest talk and direct approach, James leans heavily on the practical outworking of faith by addressing issues of everyday life. What we say and, what, and how we say it. Uh, he addresses the topics of, of wealth and poverty. How to deal with anger, conflict, business plans, sickness and suffering. James has been, no wonder he's been described as wonderfully down to earth. And in addition to being very practical, James is also very memorable and impactful in the way he writes and the the metaphors and illustrations he uses. He talks about the transience of wealth being like wildflowers fading under the heat. Or verbal outbursts, he describes them as raging forest fires. Or perseverance, we need perseverance like the patient, resilient farmer waiting for his crop. And the the pithy, the short way James teaches and the everyday illustrations he uses are reminiscent of that great master teacher himself, Jesus. Indeed, while James rarely names or quotes Jesus, when we look closer, actually, we find that his teachings are saturated with the teachings of Jesus. The parallels between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, for example, and the letter of James are many, and we will take note of some of those along the way. His topic, said one writer, mimic Jesus' own emphasis. He is, James has clearly absorbed the teachings of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, as he calls him, and he is eager to help others to become more like Jesus too. So let's dive into the book of James, shall we? James, chapter 1, going to be reading verses 1 to, uh, to verse 18. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops or produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, 
You should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even as they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Before we get into James, it's helpful to clarify which James is writing, has written this letter. There are at least four that we know of in the New Testament. Two of them were apostles, one that was martyred very early on in the, in the New Testament. But most commentators agree that James, the James that wrote this letter is the younger brother of Jesus, who became the lead in the church in Jerusalem and features prominently at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Now, James never describes himself as the younger brother of Jesus, but rather, if you notice, as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by doing so, James is saying that what matters most is not his unique family, familial relationship, and connection, but the spiritual connection that he shares with all followers of Jesus. The true mark of belonging to Jesus, being part of Jesus' family, is being devoted to serving him. And notice also who James has come to believe that Jesus is. The Lord. That is, in the same category as God. And Jesus, he says, is the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. That is the hero of God's salvation story that the, all of the scriptures have been pointing and leading up to. Now, if anyone had trouble believing this kind of thing about Jesus, it was his own family. In fact, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter five, 7, verse 5, says that even his own brothers did not believe in him during the entire time of his earthly ministry. And yet... After Jesus' death and his resurrection, we see James not only believes that Jesus is the Christ, but he gives his life to serve him. And James, 
by 62 AD will actually die as a martyr in the cause of Christ. And James is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That is, predominantly Jewish Christians who had been scattered by persecution, probably the persecution that erupted that we read about in, the, in, the, in Acts. Now, his letter is not just for them, but they were his primary audience and the ones at that time most in need of his pastoral care and wisdom. So immediately following his brief greeting, you know, James gets straight to the point of how to handle trials like the kind that they are going through. Now, James's perspective on trials and the one that he wants them and us to adopt, well, it is, it's different, isn't it? Consider it pure hell, we might think, when you go through many trials, but James, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, it would be natural to feel powerless and, and overwhelmed when trials come our way. But James says we always have a choice of how to respond. And please note, James doesn't say, pretend you're joyful. You know, paste on a smile and just grin and bear it. No, he says, consider. And that word in, in Greek is often used to lead. And here the meaning is to lead the mind to think of it as an occasion for genuine rejoicing. It's going to need to give some leadership to the mind, just like you might put a, you know, a halter on an animal to lead it. Now, how, James, is such a thing even possible? Well, he knows we're going to ask that question. He, in verses 3 and 4, he helps give insight into how we can adopt this perspective. We can experience pure joy in adversity, James says, because we know the good it will produce. In the natural world, there are many examples of how the process of testing training produce perseverance. Physical training. You know, I was just talking to a young fellow this morning. He's up every day practicing soccer, you know. And uh, there's effort and energy required in sports. Also in work. Our neighbor, she works for the police. She's got to stay in top physical condition, has to work out regularly. In music, the practice but also when they're making things, steel to strengthen it, it's tempered. Or the big cables on the Portman Bridge, you know, the uh, tension cables are stretched in order to make them stronger. And the process often is difficult of these things, but what it produces is good. Greater resilience and strength. And this is why James says we should not just look at our trials, but through them to the good that God is wanting to produce in us and in others. I think of a great example during the uh, uh, vacation Bible stool during kids camp. One of the people featured in the story each day was the character Joseph in the book of Genesis. Genesis, in there, Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He spent years in prison. And yet, God was at work through him. And in fact, Joseph will rise to prominence. He will become the minister of finance, second, if you will, to, uh, only to Pharaoh himself. And God will use him 
to not only save those people, but the world through the famine that was coming. And Joseph will say in, at the end of Genesis to his brothers, he will say, you, you did intend to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives from this famine. Now this training process, these trials, they need, James says, to finish its work or to have its complete effect of spiritual maturity. And this can't happen if we kind of short-circuit the process. The full process is required for the desired outcome. I know I was uh, cooking eggs a while back, and uh, I didn't quite cook them long enough. And you have a hard-boiled egg, and it's not hard on the inside. You've got to finish that process. And the character qualities and maturity needed to carry out and complete the good work that God has for us can often only be achieved through adversity. I think what struck me years ago, Nelson Mandela in South Africa, they needed a leader like Nelson Mandela. But look at all of those years that he spent in prison, overcoming his own anger and hostility and saying, how can we build a nation better. One writer said, trials are the sandpaper that God uses to finish us, right? Well, James turns to a second theme in verse 5, and it might seem like a totally new topic, you know, that of seeking and gaining wisdom. And this is a major theme in James, but it is connected to and flows out of what he has just talked about. After all, how would you respond to the news that God's goal for you is to be mature and complete, not lacking one single thing. Sounds like Jesus. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, it sounds impossible, right? And yet, God has great hopes and dreams for us. He knows that what he calls us to is always impossible without his help. So he hopes that we will when we find ourselves in way over our head, lacking, lacking, you know, strength or wisdom in this case, that we will ask our Heavenly Father to help us. You know, He has dad strength. Remember when you were a kid and you couldn't open something? You needed dad strength. Or how am I going to fix this when it breaks? We need dad wisdom, right? That's what He's, and He's there. He's ready and willing to help us. And so James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Sounds a lot, actually, like the way Jesus asks, invites us to pray in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave a lesson on prayer, what God's character is like, and he said, ask and it will be given to you. And he will conclude that teaching, how much more will your Father in heaven good give, give good gifts to those who ask him? And James says, when you ask, you should believe and not doubt. Now, I don't think James is trying to encourage believers to stuff their doubts down real deep, you know, like a balloon trying to hold it underwater, right? No, you know, and then work up this feeling of, of certainty. He's wanting them to commit themselves. Don't try hedging your bets. If you do, you're like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind, totally unstable. 
I remember years ago when we lived in Ladner, uh, we got a canoe given to us, and we'd wanted to get out in the canoe, and my son Nathan and I, and the first time out, you know, we got it up by the dock, and then it's getting into the canoe when you haven't done that for a long time. And I remember there was this moment where I had one foot on the dock, and I got one foot in the canoe, and it started to drift. Oh my, I only avoided disaster by putting all my weight, you know, into that canoe (laughs) and grabbing the paddle, staying low. But I had to commit, you see? And that's what James is getting at. It's this, when he's talking about belief, it's not just mental assent. Yeah, I think I can get into the canoe, right? No, it involves trust and it involves commitment, you know, into one way. I believe and I'm trusting the God that he will say, do what he said he will do. Well, in verses 9 to 11, James appears to switch to yet a new subject, poverty and wealth. But if you notice in verse 12, he will return to the theme of trials. And so I think that he is actually addressing a specific trial here that many of them were experiencing, that of economic hardship. They'd been uprooted and and forced to disperse around the empire. They were, as James says, believers in humble circumstances. And once again, James's challenge is to adopt God's perspective, a God's eye view of their situation. They may be poor in the eyes of the world, at the bottom of the social ladder, but... As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So, James says, take pride in your high position, not in this world, in God's kingdom, much greater, the real, ultimate kingdom. Now, we might wonder, take pride? Uh, I thought pride... And the word means boasting here. Isn't that always wrong? Well, not always. Uh, Jeremiah, and Paul will quote Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. But let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. You see, the problem is taking pride or boasting in the wrong things, in our education, our wisdom, our strength, our riches. But since their position in the kingdom of God is all God's doing, God's grace, boasting in that directs all the glory and praise to God. There's nothing we did to earn this or to achieve this. It was a gracious gift that we are enjoying. And by way of contrast, James tells the rich to take pride in their humiliation. That's different too, isn't it? It seems upside down, but looks can be deceiving. You know, don't believe everything that you see on an Instagram photo. You don't see the disaster before or after, do you? You know, when I post my picture about a salmon I caught, I don't post all of those next five days where I got nothing. (sighs) You know? So, riches 
he says, are as fleeting as a wildflower under the adversity of the sun. Like the volatility of the market these days, or inflation, or rising interest rates, weather conditions, uncertainty. James's image and, and commentary on the destiny of the rich, he says, they will fade away even as they go about their business. He's, that suggests that he is referring to unbelievers and to all who put their faith or identity or destiny, you know, in riches or in the things of this world. By way of sharp contrast, James says, blessed, it's a beatitude, blessed in the enviable position is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, the trial, they will, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. The crown of life is the, uses the language of the victor's crown that was given at the great athletic competitions. But here it's the crown of life that does not fade in verse 13, James will make a transition from, he's talking about external trials, now he's going to talk about internal ones. We call them temptations, it's the same word. And he probably talks about it because every trial, every external difficulty carries with it a temptation, an inner enticement to sin. Now, while it is true that God may bring or allow trials of many kinds to come our way, James wants to make it absolutely clear that God is never the cause of temptation. For God's character, he says, is such that it could never happen. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So, who or what is the source then of temptation that we all live with and experience? I think writer uh, Sam Albury is right when he says, our reflex is so often to blame, to lay the blame for our temptation elsewhere. This is a temptation, a tendency that runs very deep in us. We find it very easy to, to blame God for the temptations we experience. God, you made me like this. You gave me these strong desires or this weakness. Uh, you put me in this situation. Well... James counters this thinking with good theology. That is, so often it's about a true understanding of God versus a false one and a true understanding of human beings versus a distorted one. You see, the main view of human beings in our culture today is that we are innately, fundamentally good. Isn't it? You know, just follow those inner feelings and they'll guide you to truth. And then the problem is that our parents, our peers, our circumstances, or our genes are to blame. That, James says, is nonsense. The only one who is truly good and perfect is God. So he cannot be tempted by evil. And as James will explain, we are the reason behind our temptation, the cause. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. 
And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. James uses actually a metaphor for fishing to explain how human nature works. Two of these words are from fishing. The bait on a fisherman's hook would entice the fish. That's the language there. And once hooked, the fish would be dragged away to its death. The analogy is vivid and appropriate. The picture of of Satan casting the enticements of sin before us and hooking us and then dragging us away when we bite is both vivid and terrifying. Reminded of Proverbs 14, verse 12, which says, There is a way that appears to be right, that is, from our human point of view, but in the end it leads to death. Our death. No wonder James then issues a stark warning. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters, he says. Now, some deceit is obvious. You know, the, you pick up the phone and it, uh, this robotic-like voice, hello, this is the CRA, Canada Revenue Agency calling, right? Um, pretty obvious. But some deceit is hard to detect. You know, you watch a movie and it's teaching you, just follow your heart. Oh, it even feels good. Sounds wonderful, but but don't be deceived, James says, about human nature, right? It's often twisted and not true. It can't always be trusted. And so don't be deceived about what God is like either. Remember the original sin in Genesis 3? God had been so generous to Adam and Eve, but Satan comes along and he reframes it. Did God really say you, you can't have anything, right? He, he reframes God from this generous God to a miser, and, and they take the bait. It makes God look stingy. And James says, each and every good and perfect gift, everyone is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Now, notice how often people often attribute evil to God. A disaster happens. How could God let this happen? Right? Or a tragedy. You know, how can there be a God and and can let this happen? But rarely do they reflect on the disproportionate amount of good that God does and gives. You know the one who turns it around? Jesus. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? He, he reminds them, God causes the sun to rise not only on the good, but also on the evil. He causes the rain to fall, you know, on the evil and the good. There's good gifts that are given regularly, time and time again. Do you ever stop and ask, Where is all this good coming from? Every good and perfect gift is from our creator and our sustainer. This is who God is and what he is like, stated positively. Stated negatively, that is what God is not like, James says, he does not change like the shifting shadows. Probably has in mind here, you know, the the constant movement of the sun and the the shadows get short and they lengthen and they change throughout the course of the day, right? Or you watch the moon and over the course of the month, 
the phases of it change completely, right? And he is, God, by contrast, is unchangeable and totally reliable. I love the song that we sang. My God is still the same. My God is still the same. In, in verse 15, James uses the language of birth. He'd used that language of birth negatively, of birthing sin that gives, you know, grows up and, and gives birth to, and becomes dead. In verse 18 now, he uses it positively to speak of the new birth that God chose to give us when we were dead in sin. That old cycle is countered by this brand new cycle, a wonderful cycle. And we are, you know, John chapter 3 will speak about being born again with Nicodemus or new creations or part of the new creation in Christ. This is the ultimate good and perfect gift, this, this new birth where we were dead in our sins and through God's spirit and the gift that Jesus gives us, we are alive in him. Jesus, James will say much more about our need to receive this life-giving gift of God. And in verse 21, James will say, Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Wonderful image again, right? This need for this receptivity, but it's in order for this seed to take root and to grow in us that grows up to eternal life. James probably has the gospel message in mind. The good news of how Jesus died to take away our sins and offer us new life as we open up our hearts to him and to his word to us. And when we do that, we become, he says, a kind of first fruits. A, a demonstration of God's new creation. And then also we become part of God's ongoing invitation to others to also experience this new birth and this new life that he offers. Well, James, he will have much more to say about embracing and embodying this new life in Christ. But it is already clear in these opening 18 verses that he is, he is calling us to see and think and act very differently as followers of Christ. For God chose not only to give us new birth in Christ, but a, a brand new and far more resilient way of living and joyful way of living when we face trials of many kinds. That's different. It will stand out. For as reminded of Paul, the Apostle Paul himself noted, our light and momentary troubles, he said, are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. James and Paul on this are totally in sync. And so I want to challenge, encourage you this week. To, uh, to keep these kind, this kind of perspective in mind, and the, the series, you know, picture that Ariel chose was with sticky notes. She had some very options, and we came back. I said, I want the sticky note one, because James is giving us these wisdom nuggets to live by. And so I encourage you to get yourself a sticky note. If you don't have them, you know, you just come to the office or ask me, we'll, we'll hand them out for you. And then write one of these nuggets on here. I encourage you to Put that on your mirror, maybe, or memorize it, right? Uh, maybe um, consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Remember that. What's, what is not, don't just look at it, but through it. Or verse 5, if any of you lacks strength, wisdom, ask God. 
He's not a miser. He gives generously. Uh, And blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Maybe you're in the midst of one and you need that reminder. Lord, you have a blessing in opportunity for me even in the midst of this. So I encourage you, take one of those nuggets that God has been speaking to you this morning. Write that verse on, on a sticky note. Put it somewhere prominent. Internalize that. That is the way that God's word begins to take root, this word planted in our heart, and it begins to grow a new life, new possibilities in us that were not there before. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, let's pray. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, Father with Dad's strength and Dad wisdom, who is the giver of all good gifts, Lord, there are challenges that we experience in life, physical challenges, emotional, relational, economic. And Lord, it is hard to see the good in them. And yet, Lord, your servant, James, your kid brother, who became a follower of you, Lord, gleaned your wisdom, applied it to his life, and said, this really works. This really works. Jesus really is the Messiah. And his teachings really will absolutely change your life. Lord, help us to work that wisdom into our lives as you empower us by your ongoing presence through your Holy Spirit for your glory and our good and the good of our world. Amen. By grace or grace alone, well, I, was, I did have a thought there about James uh, singing along with that, and, and he might add, and grace, it works so well. It just causes this like fertilizer that just causes what God plants in us to grow. And, uh, and that is good news, friends, isn't it? And it's good news we, we need to share. I know often in the world, uh, people think, no, you know, Human nature, distorted about human nature. But it's good news because God has a solution to that bent that we have, that inner bent towards selfishness. God has a solution to straighten it out, point it to him, and it will be good for all. Let us go and, uh, and serve the Lord. Oh, just a reminder also, if you would like prayer, we have a prayer team always available here, up at your right, my left here, and uh, they would love to, to be able to pray with you. Maybe it's something to praise God for, an answer to prayer you've experienced. Or maybe it is some kind of trial, difficulty that you're going through, and you want someone to come along and to pray with you. I encourage you to take advantage of that. And if you'd like to stick around afterwards and to enjoy some of the goodies they have and, and coffee and tea and visit, I encourage you to do that as well. Let us go and, and to serve our God. Amen.